when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord Jesus. Stately clump buck bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Sorry, I had to get some other language in for my fellow Celts. <laughs> um, I'd like to thank you all for being here. I'd really like to say a huge thank you to um, our partners in this event. It's in partnership with Shakespeare and Company. That's where Adam is from and supported by the Embassy of Ireland, London and the Consulate General of Ireland in Cardiff. So most of our discussion so far has been how are we going to talk about Ulysses in 45 minutes? It seems like such an impossible <laughs> task. But let me introduce the people who are going to attempt to do that. Sitting beside me here is John Mitchinson, who's a writer and publisher, the co-founder of Unbound, uh, which most of you know is a, a crowdfunding platform um, which publish, has published amazing books. Pat McCabe's new book is out with them. It's very good. Mm -hmm. um, Co-host of Backlisted, one of the UK's most popular uh, books podcasts, and he helped create the BBC TV show QI. He also wrote the best-selling series of books, uh, the QI books. Before that, he held senior roles in publishing at Harvel and Cassell and was the original marketing director of Waterstones, the UK's largest bookseller. John's been Vice President of the Hay Festival since 1998 and writes a regular column called The Upside Down for the Byline Times. In 2022, he wrote a 12-part podcast series on the brain with Stephen Fry, Stephen Fry's Inside Your Mind, and it's on Audible if you'd like to listen. <laughs> In the middle, we have Zhao Lu Guo, who is an award-winning Chinese writer, or Chinese-British memoirist, writer, essayist, and filmmaker. Her novels include a concise Chinese-English dictionary for lovers and I Am China. Her memoir, Once Upon a Time in the East, won the National Book Critics Circle Award in 2017 and was shortlisted for the Royal Society of Literature Award. Her recent novel, A Lover's Discourse, was shortlisted for both the Goldsmiths 2020 and longlisted for the Orwell Prize in 2021. She's directed many, many films, including How Is Your Fish Today, which was a Sundance official selection, uh, won the Grand Jury Prize at the International Women's Film Festival in France, and her documentaries include We Went to Wonderland, which premiered at MoMA in New York, once Upon a Time Proletarian at the Venice Film Festival, and Five Men and a Caravaggio, which was at the London Film Festival in 2018. She's also, when she's not busy doing all of that, a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and currently a visiting professor at the Free University in Berlin. And on the far end, we have Adam Biles, who's an English writer and translator based in Paris. He's the literary director at the wonderful bookshop Shakespeare and Company, from where he also hosts their weekly podcasts. And since this year, he's been very busy. February 2nd, which is Joyce's birthday, um, they started a, uh, for, to commemorate the centenary, obviously. They devised, he has devised, produced, um, 
coerced a lot of writers into yeah. reading for the podcast, I think I'd have to say. Um, and it's a free audio podcast and every weekday a new voice goes up with everybody from Eddie Azar to Stephen Fry to all, I think we've all been roped into it as well. Um, and it's read by more than 100 writers. It's, it's, it's actually, we'll talk about it in a moment because I think it does something really interesting to the book. Um, and it's accompanied by a 10 pass part kind of bloomcast, a sort of deep dive into the themes and issues that Joyce gets into. Um, uh, his first feeding time was his first novel published by Galley Beggar Press and it was chosen by The Guardian as a fiction book for 2016. Uh, book of the Year for the Observer, the Irish Times and the Millions, and Adam will have some exciting news for you at the end of this discussion. So it's really difficult to know where to start, but I guess, Adam, because you've been so immersed in the book for the last few months, maybe you'd, if anyone is not that familiar or read it years ago and has forgotten, would you give us a bit of the background and context to this very important book? Okay, so um, I guess there's the, the book itself, and then there's the what brought the book into the world mm -hmm. um, and what Shakespeare and Company has to do with the book. So maybe should I begin with that and... Um, and go from there. So we're celebrating the centenary uh, this year because Shakespeare and Company Bookstore in Paris published uh, James Joyce's Ulysses on the 2nd of February, as you said, Joyce's birthday, Joyce's 40th birthday. Um, anyone here 40 or over, as I am, suddenly, that suddenly makes you feel very inadequate of what you've <laughs> achieved um, with your life. Um, but does the, I suppose the question is, why did a bookstore publish, um, publish this book? Surely the traditional route would have been a publisher. And the fact is, the book wasn't going to come out anywhere. So Joyce started work on Ulysses in 1914, and the dates of Ulysses are very important. So it began in 1914, finished in 1921. So the writing took in, obviously, the First World War and the Easter Rising um, in, in 1916. Um, and he, the book was being serialized in the Little Review in the United States, so run by um, Jane Heber and Margaret Anderson. Um, by about 1919, copies of the Little Review started being confiscated by American authorities because word had got out that perhaps this book could be um, considered obscene in many ways. Um, and when the Little Review published the Norsica episode, which we may come on uh, to speak about in a moment, finally the the writers were uh, uh, the books were confiscated and the right and the publishers of the Little Review were put on trial. Um, if you want to read about the obscenity trial, I can recommend uh, Kevin Birmingham's The Most Dangerous Book, really goes into to detail about it. But this was essentially quite a ridiculous uh, trial, trying to decide whether the, the book was obscene or a work of art. Um, and one, as, as, as it came down to it, in the end, it was deemed obscene, despite all of the many co compelling arguments that were, uh, that were put in, in its favour. And the the women, so Jane Heap and Margaret Anderson, were each fined $50, and any future publication from uh, Ulysses was banned in the United States. As a result, uh, B.W. Hoypsch, who was uh, Joyce's publisher at the time, he'd done Dubliners, he'd done uh, Portrait of the Artist, obviously said his hands were tied. He couldn't publish the book. The British and the, uh, well, the British and at the time Irish authorities followed suit and banned the book. And as a result, uh, Joyce was despairing. Um, at the same time as that, a young American woman, Sylvia Beach, had opened her bookstore, Shakespeare and Company, first on the Rue du Pitraine, and then in 1920, she moved on to the Rue de l'Odéon. She met James Joyce at a party in July 1920. The very next day, he came in and signed up to her reading library. And within a year, uh, the two of them had concocted this scheme based on, uh, based on his desperation that his book would never, would never come to, to see the light of day. The, Sylvia Beach would establish a subscription model to publish 
and print a thousand copies of Ulysses in France, because France at the time and throughout a lot of the 20th century had much more, well, they had much laxer laws for obscenity, and also if things were published in, in English, they just didn't really care about them, so you could publish <laughs> more or less what you wanted. Um, so they, they raised the money with a lot of help from Sylvia's partner, Adrien Monnier, who ran her own bookshop um, just across the road from, from Shakespeare and Company, and they rushed it to publication because Joyce had this fantasy that it would come out on his 40th birthday, so the 2nd of February, 1922. Um, they used Monnier's printer, who um, was based in, uh, in Dijon, and Joyce was actually doing copy edits right up until the final day. Uh, so he was, he, uh, they were telegraphing... Um, down to the printer in Dijon, and they were, I mean, one of the big things he did in the final weeks was remove all of the punctuation from Penelope, the, the final section. So originally it was quite conventionally written, and then he had this brainwave, and they, they removed all the punctuation. But the copies were printed, a thousand copies printed. They rushed them by train, or rushed two copies by train from, Paris, from Dijon to Paris. They arrived the morning of the 2nd of February 2020. Uh, 1922, and Sylvia Beach was able to give one copy to Joyce and put one copy uh, on display in the window of Shakespeare and Company. Wonderful. John, John I, I want to ask you about the context of where it comes in Joyce's life, because this, you know, he, he wrote a lot of other things, but this, his life seems to be very overshadowed by, by this book. Yeah, I mean, as Adam said, he was, he was writing, he started writing in, in 1914. At that point, um, Dubliners was published in 07, was it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so he'd had this extraordinary... I mean, the, it's often said about Joyce in a slightly annoying way that he, he only published masterpieces. <laughs> but, you know, the, the collection, the Dubliners collection, uh, there will be a lot of people who will say that's... You know, much as I admire Ulysses, really, the stories in Dubliners are... Particularly the dead, yeah. The yeah, dead are his yeah. masterpiece. I mean, I, I, I think it is an extraordinary collection. And he had published, uh, he ha he'd not published Portrait. It was Portrait 16, I think. Yes, yes. So, later, yeah. So he'd, he'd finished, he'd, he'd obviously, he'd written a, a, a kind of a draft of, of Portrait called Stephen Hero, abandoned that and then rewrote. And you can already see in Portrait, he's beginning to explore the different, different sort of modal forms of, of writing that would become the dominant, uh, the dominant way, the episodic form that became Ulysses. So... Mm. It's quite a long period, and he's moving around. He's, he's, he's moves from Trieste to, to Zurich. You know, he's obviously exiled in, in, in self-imposed exile in Europe. Um, but he takes the decision to, that he's going to take one day in 1904. The significance of 1904 is often argued over, but it was certainly the year that he first met his, his, his wife to be Nora Barnacle. And he picks a day in June, um, and that's that's sort of the journey of that day becomes the the journey of the novel. And he obviously famously bases each episode is based on an individual hour. Each episode is based on an individual part of the of of, of the uh, the Odyssey. Each part perhaps corresponds to a, an organ of the body. Mm -hmm. Um, he, he creates an incredibly complex fictional structure which, um, as Anima said, begins to be published in the Little Review. Um, and by the time it comes out, he hasn't started to write Finnegan's Wake. He's 40. 
He's kind of, at, I suppose, at the, you might say, at the peak of his powers. His eyesight, I think, is beginning to cause yeah. him problems. It became a terrible problem for him yeah. later. Um, but it's, it's Adam's point about it being a really important thing. I mean, Ulysses was, was, you know, this was, he felt, at that point, was the, the, the novel that would, that would change everything for him. And I think, I always feel he kind of had a sense that he was, that he was doing something. It's maybe something mm -hmm. we can talk about. How far did... Joyce think that he was um, writing something that was completely original and, and well I think I mean he he, he said, said that didn't he yeah, he'd keep the, the scholars for years to come or something yeah he said he could keep the professors busy for centuries yeah. and <laughs> yeah. he's already done one century oh he knew it he knew it for the I, second what I'm interested in as well because I think there's a it's very interesting to me where at what point in your life you discover the book when mm. do you read it like is it when you're much older is it college because you were made to read it because it was on a syllabus <laughs> was it when you were younger and trying to impress a boy as I was uh, <laughs> as a teenager um, where did you first come across the book Shelley? It's actually 1994 because um, in China this, this book is really the translation of the century mm -hmm. I mean it didn't take a hundred years to translate but <laughs> 70 years to <laughs> translate and I, I remember I came to Beijing to study 1993 from my southern hometown, and 1994, the, the whole volume, the complete translation finished. Actually, it's two different versions by two communist <laughs> official translators yeah, yeah. by the state publishing house. So I'm the only one here, I th actually, I think I read really the, the complete Chinese translation, <laughs> but still haven't finished the English original version yet. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's, it's strange in a way as is the Asian, as, as a Chinese reader, you know, we, we read everything from the West through translation, and this is the only book. Um, it's really odd reading in translation because we are not based on the Roman alphabetical sound. Yeah. So our language is really um, ideograms, so pictorial, so it's image-based language. So all the sound, the poem, the repetition, the poetic things completely, yeah. I wouldn't use the word, um, Lost because I still I think the translation better than no translation at all. You know, it took yeah. seventy years to translate through wow. five generations actually different wow. translate try and give up. Um, but it's really strange. You know, it's no longer about sound; mm -hmm. it's about trans um, interpret Western religious art. <laughs> you know, medieval myth and as a doubling you know, geography right yeah. in a Chinese sense. Yeah. Therefore, the only thing I remembered actually from nineteen nineties the part about food yeah. <laughs> in City yeah. Hotel. It was perfect translated, Chinese imagination food, perfect. <laughs> and then the last uh, section about se sexuality, really Molly's monologue yeah. works. And rest is really a blur. <laughs> <laughs> I Thank think you some English readers, readers feel that too. Yeah. I think you're not alone in that, yeah. actually. What about you, Adam? When did you um, come first across it? I, I could have considered myself having two sort of encounters with it. So the first one um, was at university. Um, I was studying philosophy and politics and therefore was reading everything that wasn't on the syllabus. I felt suddenly there were hole, holes in my literary education. So I was reading all of the big actually mostly boys, I guess, like mm. Dostoevsky, Melville, Proust. And I read Ulysses and sort of didn't connect with it in a way that I was expecting to. And I sort of so spent a good 20 years as kind of a Ulysses skeptic. Yeah. Now, obviously, when you work with Shakespeare and Company, <laughs> you can't officially be a Ulysses skeptic. Yeah. It's a professional necessity <laughs> to, <laughs> to be a fan of this book. Yeah. And uh, so I was at the, you know, we celebrate Bloom, Bloomsday every year. And so I was encountering it in fragments from readings people were doing. And again, didn't really change my opinion until we started this project. So about seven or eight months ago, and thought, okay, I'll, I'll read it through. And I read it through with a couple of guides 
um, which is incredibly helpful if you're coming at it relatively fresh. And it just blew my mind. And I've, I've been inhabiting this book now for these seven or eight months, and it's not an understatement to say it has Did you read, the, was it the Declan Kybert? It was one of the Declan Kybert ones. Declan Kybert, yeah, Terence Killeen, Patrick Hastings. Like, these guides are amazing. It's one of the few books where the guides are a genre in themselves and so compelling to read just, just yeah. on their own. But I think also what's important for me in the two times I encountered it is the first time I was more or less the same age as Stephen Dedalus, so one of the protagonists, the young, pretentious, conflicted artist. <laughs> and hey, I was a young, pretentious, <laughs> conflicted artist at the time. And then you have Leopold Bloom, who was about 40, which was which oh, I was 41 when I started reading it uh, for the, the second time. And I realized actually, again, when reading it recently, Bloom had been in a relationship for, with Molly for 16 years, which is the exact duration of my relationship. Yeah. And, and I think reading it first as Stephen and then as Leopold, in a way, had, it had such a transformative effect on me. The first time Bloom didn't seem a particularly compelling character, it was all about Stephen. This time, yeah. it, it's all about Bloom. And Steve, Stephen's great, but... Yeah, you know, no, it, it is. We're, definitely, we're coming back to Bloom, but tell me when you first read it, John. Was it a long oh, time ago? Yeah, I was 18. Not suggesting you're old or anything, but just... Oh, I, I am old. <laughs> but I was 18, and I, was, I remember reading it. It's weird, it, it fuses in my head with... I was coming back to England from New Zealand, where I'd, we'd emigrated when I was 12, and I'd be fallen in love with Joyce at school, and I took on with me on my travels a Penguin copy of Ulysses. And I remember reading it on the plane, and the, it was also the day that John Lennon got shot. It's very strange, kind of, but being completely just entranced by the, 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 the language. You know, the early sections of the book, uh, Telemachus approaches. Um, and and I, I worked my way through it right, right the way to the end, and for, for years it was the proud boast that I'd got to the end of Ulysses and that <laughs> nothing nothing I would ever read would be... I remember starting to read D.H. Lawrence and thinking, oh, this is crap. <laughs> and actually, and then I had a kind of road to Damascus and I, I abandoned Joyce and started to read much more broadly and widely. Started to read lots of, eventually, lots of, of women writers who uh, we, we weren't particularly taught at university. So I only came back to it in my 58th year last year. Mm. And I made myself try and read it and, and, and listen to it without any notes, without any help. Just because I wanted to try and feel what he was doing when the, you know, mm. when the book's published, it didn't come with any guides. Trying to recapture that sort of, and rather like you, it's, I mean, I, it's, such a, it's such an extraordinary well of mm. brilliant. You know, what what I, th I, I feel is it, it's like a handbook for anyone who ever wants to try and do anything different in any any art form, mm -hmm. Ulysses is kind of he's trying so many different things. Not sure en entirely everything works in yeah. it, mm -hmm. yeah. But as a taken as a whole, it's just it's just an amazing, radiant, uh, positive, life-enhancing mm. book. Mm. See, people who love it think that about it, and yet there's a there's it's almost become a shorthand. I've seen it in TV shows where there's a joke about mm. that. Oh, you couldn't get through Ulysses, or so there's yeah. a lot of mythology around the difficult nature of the book. The, the word jacker I use in the introduction, the Irish word for difficult, um, it's considered a difficult book by a lot of people. And so a lot of people I know have read Dubliners, they've uh, you know read Portrait of the Artist, and just said I, I wouldn't go near. I, they're they're intimidated by it. So where does that intimidation and does like and the mythology sort of begets itself? The more people talk it up as difficult, the more people run away from it. What do you think, Jelu? Interesting. Um, I remember when I was reading the Chinese version, you know, really 20 years ago, 
Okay. That was only time. I mean, uh, around 1994, that was the first edition came out. Mm. Um, the first uh, print in Chinese translation was very modest, 20,000 copies for the first week. And it was sold out immediately. Mm. So they, I think that the standard Chinese print <laughs> for any you know, standard non-bestseller kind of you know, re reasonable book was 20,000. Yeah. Immediately ran out. And then so they reprinted 80,000 more. Uh, was immediately sold out. Wow. And, uh, but I, I wanted to say, you know, everyone possessed a physical copy. Didn't, you know, it didn't mean they possessed yeah. knowledge. There's a lot of copies so of those <laughs> houses, I think. So basically, the idea is if you haven't been to Dublin more than 10 times, you cannot yeah. read the book. Mm. Yeah. So immediately, the tourism to Dublin was, you know, <laughs> peaked out <from laughs> amongst the Chinese intellectuals. I remember, you know, my, my brother, you know, all, all my you know, family members, yeah. if they were intellectual, they want to go to Dublin to understand this book, but um, the real, I think the real attraction was really the last chapter mm. appeals to Chinese readers. You know, yeah. this feminine monologue supposed to be about love, sexuality, and I think suits the Chinese idea of, of romance, how, how romance should be between men and women. Mm. The rest remains um, impenetrable, yeah. <laughs> opaque. Yeah. But I think there's huge debate online, actually, in Chinese and amongst feminist readership. Mm. You know, Molly's uh, monologue in then, yes, I will say, you know, I say yes. And there's two grand translations by two grand uh, translators. They couldn't translate yes in Chinese. There's mythology about Chinese people cannot say yes because we don't have absolute this word for yes. <laughs> During the communist time, we invented this word shi, yeah. which just means correct. Oh. But we don't have this word yes. So. In one of the amazing translations by Jing Di, <laughs> who was born in the 1920s, and he died at around 2000. You know, he went to America in the 1780s. He began to translate in the 1780s. It took him 20 years to translate. After translation, he died. Um, he, <laughs> he translated the years, I will say years, a final line, yeah. as, which means, of course, I will, for seriousness, I'm serious. Oh, and then in another version, which is amazing translation by Xiao Chen and his wife Wen Jieruo, the translation for the years is <laughs> is suggesting the female submission, which is, I find mm. actually much more correct. Mm. So Molly says, "Um, how ba, how ba, which means, "Well then, I give up." Mm. Well then, I give up. Yeah. <laughs> Come to me. Yeah. So it's odd, and this you know allows this feminist discussion, you know, mm. James Joyce imagining this amazing female submission in his idea of, mm. you know, what, what his wife maybe, you yeah. know, might yeah. be doing, you know. And I think made me really um, suddenly change the reading experience. Mm. And I think suddenly become very suspicious <laughs> about Molly's point of view in the book, you know. And I think I become um, worried Whenever I enter Molly's mind, and I say, well, this is James Joyce. Yeah. It's not Penelope yeah. or Molly Bloom. And also this, this feminine quality in James Joyce's novel, you know, I, I start to look at, and I thought, how, how should the other culture translate this feminine voice? Yeah. You know, it's mm. extremely confident. Yeah. You know, it's, it's submissive, but also in control all the time, you know, at the same time. So it's very interesting. You know, if you read from feminist point of view, it's very <laughs> rich. Yeah. And strange. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, just coming, coming back to this idea of the book being hard, the mm -hmm. kind of the irony of that is that 
Joyce would have hated yeah. that thought. So yeah. there's this famous story about when he, uh, when the book was coming out, he pointed to his waiter, the waiter at his favorite cafe in Paris, his son, and said, he'll be reading Ulysses one day. Like, for him, this was a book for the working man. You know, this was, and in fact, I mean, Virginia Woolf, for all of her very great qualities, was also a terrible snob. And she, <laughs> she described it like as the book yeah. of a self-taught Dublin working man in yeah. a very kind of sneering way. But actually, that's exactly what Joyce wanted, because we're in the context of the early 1900s when sort of the, you had the sort of working men's reading libraries, you had the, it was the period of mass literacy. And the idea was that sort of, you didn't have to be, this idea of you had to be a specialist to read Ulysses just didn't exist around literature at this time. And there was this sense of, it may be hard, but it is for everyone. Yeah. And in fact, one of the wonderful things about the book is that it trains you to read it in the opening chapters. So it, there are some moments of sort of quite impenetrable um, uh, internal monologues. But in the opening chapters, he kind of lays the groundwork. He'll give you a little taste of that. Mm. And so he'll say, okay, this is what is coming. And so by the time you hit the really hard stuff, the really hard stuff is never easy, yeah. but it's almost like you've done your work up to that point and you are ready. So when you get to Oxen of the Sun, the famously impenetrable chapter where he parodies like 32 different English mm. writing styles. You've at least been prepared as well as you can be to read it. Yeah. And I think this whole idea of it being sort of specialist is a very kind of late, mid to late 20th century thing of where we kind of undersell the capacity of everyday people yeah. to understand great works yeah. of literature. It's a very, very modern thing, and it's such a shame because yeah. there's so much in this book which is so entertaining and funny and ribald and... Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's rude and it's, 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 it's written in all sort of every possible let register. It's, I mean, yeah. it's the, one of the great democratic texts yeah. in, 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 in written in English because he tries to inhabit every... Mm. Character. There are over 600 named characters in yeah. the book. It's, yeah. a, it's a vast... So it's that attempt to try and to try and show a whole society at a particular moment in time through through the, the lenses of all these different voices and and also diff each di different registers different ways of talking mm. different ways of writing different ways of you know there's drama there's there's, mm. there's newspaper articles there's, it's full of music as well yeah, it's full yeah, of song yeah, yeah. full of popular song so it's it's there are very few books that have had the the ambition i mm -hmm. think of, of ulysses yeah before but, uh, or since. That word democratic, I think, is really important as well because he was sort of the great leveller of culture in a way. So this was the time of mass literacy, but also the time of mass media. Mm. So we have, you know, the book is peppered with adverts, with... <laughs> Uh, newspaper yeah. headlines with extracts from romance novels. Bloom's an ad man. You forget yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. You kind of forget he's Possibly a guy the first ad yeah, man in, in fiction. The, in I don't fiction. Know. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, um, sorry, and Sweeney still sell lemon soap. You can still buy it in Dublin. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, it's really interesting to hear what Xiaolu was saying, but also I'm aware of them speaking to two I English people at an English festival, and yet it's it's such an extremely intrinsically Irish book to me, mm -hmm. yeah, and yeah. yet it has a universal appeal, I even to the point when I was rereading it. And I was actually weirdly on Eccles Street the other day, which was where he was born, um, and thinking about the idea that it's so Irish, it's so specific mm -hmm. in terms of like, you know, street numbers and place names and, and everything. You, it's, it stinks of Dublin. It absolutely stinks yeah. of Dublin. So it, do you think of it as, a, as an intrinsically Irish? It's a very European book. And again, I think that we know, you know, self-imposed exile or not, Joyce never left Ireland behind on the page. He couldn't stop writing about Ireland no matter how far away mm -hmm. he, he got from it. So how do you think of the book? Is it European, Irish, neither, both? I, I really identify with... The, the distance between the author and the city. 
as if he owned the streets, owned the pubs, owned all the shops, you know, you know. So I think, I mean, even though I come from such a different background, you know, I, I think the modern day of geography, you know, we write about the, the urban city we, mm -hmm. we inhabit it. And I think in my writing, it's just it's this intensity, you know, maybe I describe London mm -hmm. or Shanghai or Beijing in such an intense way as if we want to own it or possess it. Mm. So this is uh, something I really feel very close to, to that voice. But on the other hand, I feel this um, disconnection with, with that absolute confidence of ownership of, mm. of the city because in Joyce's writing, men own the streets. Men feel at home with streets mm. and the pubs. Mm. And so uh, this at ease, this absolute possession and confidence I don't have mm -hmm. with my native cities like Beijing or Shanghai mm. or even my hometown, you know. Women, I think in our history, it's such a difficulty to possess those streets. You know, we are not street being. And in his writing, the women, um, you know, Molly Bloom, Somehow she's always at home, and in the last chapter she's on the bed. You know, women's in the bed in his writing. Yeah. Men's in the street, roaming around, possess those streets. That I also found extremely difficult <laughs> to, yeah. to read through. You know, a hundred years later, it's really our reading habit is very different now. So that's, I found, you know, amazing, but also very discomforting, you know, when, when yeah. I read that, yeah. It's, I remember doing a, a radio program about... Um, psychogeography but also walking mm. so we, we walked around New York with Tasia Cole and we walked along the, 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 the Thames with, with um, Will Self and talked to Declan Kyvert about how Ulysses is the ultimate perambulatory novel it's a very it's yeah, a, it yeah. never stays still it's a totally kinetic book there's, and there's also things happening at the same time it's like a multiverse all by itself mm -hmm. things happening in different parts of the city and rereading it for doing this event I, it's such an energetic book and I wonder is that a reflection of the fact that Joyce I mean the, you know before he actually did run away to Europe mm -hmm. and was uh, all over the place there the family moved around so much his yeah, father yeah. was always in debt they were literally moving house all the time so there's something about him that the book never stands still because his own kind of yeah. Life never so still. I mean, the, in, in the books, the, the home as an idea is referred to several times as mm. a coffin. In fact, there's, there's, there's no, there, it, it's, where, it's where life departs, essentially, where it's a book of public spaces. So it's definitely walking, but also places like the pub, places like the National Library. Mm. Like people are always out, yeah. uh, out and moving and, and interacting. And well, as Jolie says, men particularly, because of course it's, you know, turn of the century Dublin. So the what, how men could be in public and how women could be it's in public. It's the flanner or flanners. It's like <laughs> what Rebecca right. Solnit writes yeah. about in right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Do you, Shannon, do you feel the kind of, is there a thing, because it, it, it is, as you say, it is so Irish, but is it, is there a... I'm, uh, You're crackling. I'm crackling. <laughs> crackling, I'm Julie. Um, it, uh, I mean, is there a part of you as, as an Irish writer that just wants to get beyond... Ulysses. Do we, we always have to come back and talk about this novel all the time because it's 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 so it's so dominant and it's been you know it, it's it's. I mean, I, I guess if people think of, of of 20th century Irish fiction, Ulysses will always be somewhere near the top of the list. I, I hope they still keep talking about it because Good. it is. I'm I'm really proud of the book as an Irish person, as an Irish writer. Everybody is really proud of what what Joyce did, and I think that you know, the book will li linger on and survive for a really long time. I mean, one question I am thinking about in relation to this is the idea of the inheritors, and a lot of them do happen to be Irish. I mean, you know, Edna O'Brien famously said, you know, fuck the plot, it's for pretentious schoolboys, and she was absolutely linking back to Joyce when she said that. Even McBride, I think, is, mm -hmm. is direct descendant of Joyce. So there's already, if, I mean, if he didn't matter, there wouldn't be people trying to emulate or, or, or be considered in the same kind of vainism. But no, I, I hope we always... 
keep stop. I've, keep got, I've, I've got a terrible quote, but I just thought just oh, not everybody likes not everybody <laughs> likes Joyce. This is from the notable uh, English novelist uh, Martin Amis. <laughs> just thought this was this was amusing. Uh, if you go to Nabokov's house, metaphorically speaking, you get his best chair in front of his fire with his best wine. If you go to James Joyce's house, you come into this big, drafty edifice and there's no one there. And then you find him tinkering around in some scullery and he offers you two slabs of peat around a conger eel and a glass <laughs> of mead. It's, <laughs> it's just so... It's very, very Martin it's Amos. It's expensive on multiple levels. Yeah. <laughs> it is. On it's mildly much. racist. And, um, um, yeah. <laughs> Something that we said a, a moment ago, and again, it, it was, it's wonderful to have been part of the podcast, but I was listening mm. and I saved them up. And what struck me is that if you don't, if you feel intimidated to engage with it ever on the page, the way to experience this book, I think, is to hear it aloud, because it's incredibly Incredible. musical. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, I mean, Joyce himself was a, was a great singer, but there's a musicality in terms of because there's a lot, there's a lot of Irish in it, there's a lot of Latin, there's a lot of Italian, yeah, yeah. Um, but also it gets across. I found it funnier when I listened to things. The things I hadn't noticed on the page, I noticed immediately yeah. when I when I listened. So I think it's a very aural kind of experience. Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's written in a sense of in one sense as part of the sort of, or an updating of the Irish oral tradition, actually. Mm. Like, it's, there's something that, it just lives when it's read. Although, interestingly, speaking about it as an Irish book, because of, we have readers from all over the world reading and the podcast, and everyone brings a new perspective and something interesting to it. But I have to say, when it comes to the dialogue, it suddenly makes so much more sense when it's Irish readers reading it. There are just Absolutely. certain turns yeah. of phrase or something, which, yeah. e- to English people, you read it and you're not quite sure where the grammar is going in that. Yeah. And then it just, when read by an Irish person who is attuned into the rhythms, suddenly it's sort of, okay, this is a deeply, deeply I Irish yeah. book. I think it's a European book and a yeah. world book as well. Yeah. But it's rooted in, in Irish rhythms, for mm-hmm. sure. Well, I, I mean, I, th- I, th- I would hugely recommend if, if people, I mean, the, 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 the Shakespeare and Co. recordings. Also, if you want another recording which is all Irish it's the RT, oh, it's uh, the RT yeah, recording yeah. which is a sort of uh, it's a reading but it's sort of a dramatic reading yeah. which was a few, uh, so maybe 10 15 years mm-hmm. ago but that was uh, a revelation when I heard that just yeah. because a lot of the stuff that you, you it's harder to notice on the page that, that the changes from inside and outside and um, and it's immaculate all the way through but yeah. I, what I loved about the Shakespeare and Company reading was hearing people who weren't Irish reading it yeah. because it, it, it also shows that it is mm-hmm. it is a kind of a universal yeah, text. Yeah, yeah. I learned a lot from your podcast here about this book than yeah. myself mm-hmm. reading mm-hmm. because they are all international yeah. writers and uh, for me I'm really more <laughs> interested in comparative study, comparative translation because that's how the non-Irish uh-huh. people come into the non-Anglophone people allowed to enter this crazy world. And actually, for us, actually, the stream of consciousness, the last chapter, mm. is the most readable one. Mm. And in, in Chinese translation, one translation, we punctuate it in order to help <laughs> the Chinese reader to read. And actually, that's a version, actually, Xiaoqian's version, I find less readable, yeah. you know, against the original plan. And then another version by Jindi, no punctuation, according to the original text, much more readable. Yeah. Mm. And it's weird because how we imagine a, a readership in different environments, you know, would not accept the, the difficulty, but actually because in, it's Chinese didn't have punctuation until 1950s, 60s. So it was very natural for us uh-huh. to, to make up our, our own mind where yeah. the punctuation should be. 
and also the, the no tense, no verb conjugation in Chinese language. So the last chapter, when there's a monologue, so this freedom of this, out of this timelessness, or there's a time, time, timeness. So I think allow the, the East Asian readers to be in this timeless place. That's funny because for each of the, the episodes, Joyce set the time that it took yeah. place during the day, and the one for the final chapter was infinity. Yeah. In fact, he didn't give it a time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was literally timeless. It's, uh, we know that Joyce himself said, okay, everybody's going to be reading this book in the future and talking about it. But <laughs> how, do we, how far ahead of, of time was the book itself? Because we're talking, mean, there's discussions around class and gender mm. and money and all sorts of things. But also, you know, take that stuff in, on one level, you know, formally, thematically, morally, how ahead of its time was it as a work? Uh, just insanely, like, yeah. it, it sort of it really struck me in this reading. I mean, so take, take I mean, Leopold Bloom as a, as a character. So firstly, one thing that keeps coming up is that, I mean, Bloom is, we talked about like existing in this world of men, and of course, Bloom is outwardly a man, but he is very often much more closer to sort of an androgynous feeling. He's always referred to as a very sort of womanly man. There are moments of, but uh, in the Cersei chapter where he's, it's, it's set in a brothel and he, he goes into this kind of wild dreamlike fantasy where in fact he becomes a woman and the, the madame of the brothel becomes a man and sort of dominates him. Mm. Um, there Bloom talks about how women should be run in the world. Mm. He essentially becomes a vegetarian. He suddenly starts thinking about cruelty to animals during the book. He thinks a lot about consciousness beyond human consciousness, whether that be beyond the individual human consciousness to sort of dispersed consciousness, yeah. which we talk about a lot now, but also animal consciousness is a big thing for, for Leopold Bloom. He, he proposes universal basic income at a moment. <laughs> yeah. um, he, he is, uh, a, you might call him sort of a radical centrist in a way. He's always, he's very kind of both sides to everything. So there's a moment where he's confronted by the citizen, this kind of rabid Irish nationalist. And, uh, you know, Leopold Bloom being a, being a Jew is sort of the victim of the, the citizen's ire. And he responds with uh, an extraordinary um, sort of speech in favor of democracy and of the sort of the the uh, the idea of God, essentially world citizenship. It is it, it's amazing to think that you know this. There's a character, you know, a character in a book from a uh, set in 1904 is thinking this, but also a writer doing this in the early decades of the 20th century. I mean, take the scene in the brothel. Um, a whole big part of that is in his fantasies, his ex-lovers, mm. or oh no, not his ex-lovers, women he has harassed at certain moments, come back. It's essentially a Me Too moment mm. written in 1918, 1919, that, that section would have been. Yeah. And if you think, I mean, my experience of reading 20th century novelists, particularly male novelists, is even up until like the 60s and 70s, brothels and prostitution and all that were just a kind of a fact of life and yeah. unquestioned. A Joyce through Leopold Bloom is questioning this and... Yeah. Uh, uh, questioning it as a, a sort of a moral thing in these, in, uh, at this time. It's, it's really, really extraordinary. I also want to say, you know, uh, 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 this cliche behind a green man, there's a green woman. Yeah. <laughs> but I think oh. in this case, really, Joyce's wife, Nora Banaco, yeah, she's yeah. such an immense influence on the form as well, yes. not only political content, right? Because she wrote to Joyce, with all the letters without punctuation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's this, this monologue forever, you know, she wrote to him. 
And basically, this experimental style based on his wife's letter to mm -hmm. him. You know, yeah. he just steal this letter, and then he made all these chapters. You know, it's That's incredible formalistic exercise. And yeah. I think, why would you know we don't mention yeah. that side? Yeah. Nora, who famously said that Jim knows nothing about women. <laughs> but also, but I, th I think that's important yes. to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nora, very, very important. I mean, the 16th of June, 1904, mm. was the day that she said yes to him. I yeah, mean, that is, that's, that's, that's said yes to him and gave him a hand job, which is yeah. uh, a slightly, you know, that was a defining moment in young uh, James's life. Yeah. <laughs> but also, um, the without women and also sort of radical queer women, this book just wouldn't exist. I mean, Sylvia Beach, Adrienne Mornier, yeah. Margaret Anderson, Jane Heap. Like this is, you know, this is a book written by a man, but whose existence is entirely dependent mm. on, on radical women. Absolutely. I'm really conscious of the time. So I'm going to ask you, uh, uh, well, I'll ask you two questions together. Tell me your favorite bit. And tell me why people should read this book who haven't ever read it before. John. <laughs> oh, favourite bit. Um, section. Uh, yeah, favourite section. section. Um, you, you, we've talked about, and we will talk more about Penelope. Everybody, everybody, that's everybody loves Penelope. Everybody loves Penelope. Yeah. I have a particular, because I read it as a, as a smart-ass 18-year-old, I have a particular liking of the section called Ithaca mm. towards the end. Yeah, yeah. my answer. Oh, bollocks. <laughs> Did I? Sorry. But just because I think it's, it's, a, it's questions and answers, mm. and it's sort of science, and it's, I still, it's hard, to, it's hard to say, you look at all the attempts in fiction, you know, um, experimental fiction, of which there's been a lot over the century, you know, Pynchon and Gaddis, and I, I, I'm, every time I go back to, 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 to Ulysses, and, and re, I, I see things in it that I, I think, he's, my God, he's doing this then. Yeah, he's, yeah, seen, yeah. he's seen a... And then, <laughs> we should just say this, he writes Ulysses, and then, you know, that not being enough, the <laughs> next writes, thing he writes <laughs> is Finnegan's Awake, Finnegan's <laughs> which is of a level of kind of madness that uh, no one has remotely come yeah. close to. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, not, I've not read Finnegan's Awake. I've read sections of it, and it's one of the tasks I'd like to complete. But Ulysses, for me, still has this sort of... It's still got its foot its feet in 19th century mm. fiction and yet takes you to these amazing places. But the, that Ithaca section is just, I can't imagine if you, nobody would mistake that for anybody else other than Joyce. It's, it's not the most narratively mm. obvious section, but there's a lot of humour in it mm -hmm. as well and, and a lot of extremely complicated and beautiful language. Yeah. And it's why should someone read it? Oh, why should someone read it? Because it's there. Because it's it's <laughs> because it will it. Like I say, particularly if you start off, if you're nervous of it, and you start listening to it, because it's 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 one of the I think richest, wisest, most beautiful things human beings have ever any human being has ever created. That good is answer. a good a good reason. Oh, um, for me, yeah, I stated earlier the last chapter, chapter eighteen. Actually, I read the the English version began from last chapter, all my reading experience, I always read last chapter first. Excuse me. You know. <laughs> so if you write detective novels, yeah, for me, it's much easier. If I understand the last chapter, I will go back. <laughs> and actually, I tried the first chapter in English after all my Chinese reading. I found it impenetrable, the yeah. chapter one, as yeah. actually opposite of what you felt, because I couldn't locate where they are, mm. I, which century, which house, which yeah. street. And then the last chapter, suddenly, this woman doing this crazy monologue. And, um, such a freedom. Mm. 
traveling between love and the memory and are the you sexuality. Are you going to read a little bit for us, are you? Um, I'm just going to read three lines in Chinese, the last yeah. bit about yes, mm. yes, yes. Yeah, go. Um, Which translation? <laughs> this is the translation I preferred from Qing Di, yes. who is a wonderful translator, died around 2000, and he went to US. He began to translate in the 1980s, and he spent 20 years to, to translate. But that's, again, I say you know, the yes cannot be translated into mm. Chinese easily, easily, so you have a lot of other words. And this is only one of the only Western books um, in Chinese translation longer. Normally we have half mm. length. Yeah. So you have to <laughs> write about yes. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. Um, this is going to be really weird for you, this language, but Joyce is weird. <laughs> so the last two lines in the original text, you know, you, it's about, you know, she says, well, he asked me to, would I say yes? And my mount flower, I pull his hands, mm. and I say yes, yes. 于是我用眼神叫他再求一次真的 so that's wow. yes. Wow. Thank you so really. much. And your, your case, for why should people read it? Why should people read it? Okay, I'm going to quote the, the famous Chinese translator um, Xiao Qian's words, so it's not my words. He said, this is the most unreadable text in the whole history. <laughs> you can dislike it, but you cannot ignore it. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Okay. So he stole Ithaca. You can go talk about Ithaca if you want, or you can pick something else. Um, no, I'll, I'll take Circe, which is a section which is written essentially as an unperformable play. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm, I'm choosing that for, for sentimental reasons, because for this, this project, we allocated sections to people, and you know, one person would read, and, and you know, we went through the book that way. But that wouldn't have made sense with Circe. And so we decided to record it in the bookstore to get a group of like 10 or 12 of us together over two mornings. And just and just record it. None of us professional <laughs> actors, and me not a professional sound recorder, and doing it in that way is such a brilliant way to encounter the 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 section and to encounter the book. And that's one thing. If you are feeling intimidated by reading Ulysses, read it with friends. And this was a whole idea of this project: is that right. it's. I mean, I'm I don't like book clubs really myself. I'm not that kind of reader. <laughs> Reading Ulysses in this way over the past six months has been such an extraordinary experience yeah. because it felt like an experience of community, but also just getting the insights of ev everybody had a different opinion, a different position. And so performing Circe with everyone brought it to life and just confirmed for me that perhaps of all books, Ulysses is the one to be read with a group of not not you know, scholars or anything like that, just enthusiasts okay. um, or people who hope to be enthusiasts. And you can, you know, badger each other to make sure you've read things and, you know, in time for, for whenever you're going to get together and discuss it and listen to the our podcast, listen to the RTE one. And it's really, it's really the way, the way to do it. Why should, should people, yeah, why should on. people read it? Um, my God, I mean, just speaking from personal experience, it has enriched my life so much. Um, and I think what it, it's a book, and this comes, with, I think, with Penelope's, Penelope with Molly's soliloquy at the end. It's not a book of conclusions. It's a book of openings. And what it does, what it did to literature was bust it open. What I think it does to you, the way you see the world, the way you see each other, the way you understand reading and books, is that it 
busted open. And so by the time you get to the end of it, the first thing you want to do is go back and start reading it all over again. Mm. Uh, and I know that I'm going to live with this book for the rest of my life, and I want you all to have that too. So if you okay. haven't read it, so that Brilliant. is um, why you should read it. They, they took a vote and told me that I had to read some of Penelope for you, so I'm going to read the last little part of it. Um, and we didn't get to talk about the influence on popular culture, so this Penelope is very had a huge influence on Kate Bush and her album The Central World, some of you may know that. Yes, and those handsome moors all in white and turbans like kings asking you to sit down in their little bit of a shop and Rhonda with the old windows of the Pesodas, glancing eyes a lattice hid for her lover to kiss the iron and the wine shops half open at night. And the castanets and the night we missed the boat at Algerisus, the watchman going about serene with his lamp and oh, that deep down awful torrent, oh. And the sea, the sea crimson, sometimes like fire and the glorious sunsets and the fig trees in the Almada gardens, yes, and all the queer little streets and pink and blue and yellow houses and the rose gardens and the jessamine and geraniums and cactuses and Gibraltar as a girl where I was a flower of the mountain. Yes, when I put the rose in my hair like the Andalusian girls used, or shall I wear a red? Yes, and how he kissed me under the Moorish wall and I thought well, as well as him as another. And then I asked him with my eyes to ask again, yes, and then he asked me, would I, yes, to say yes, my flower, mountain flower. And first I put my arms around him, yes, and drew him down to me. So you could feel my breasts all perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. Now. <laughs> I've, I've read that hundreds of times. Every time know, it makes I me tremble. It. I so, I'd better jump to the audience questions. Yes. I know we have only a few minutes left. Um, there are roving mm. microphones if you'd like to ask a question. There's one roving microphone. If anybody has any questions, <laughs> uh, that would be wonderful. It's very hard to see, actually. There's one over there. There's somebody over here, yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you for the lights. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hi. Um, as a sort of uh, working gardener locally, I can confirm that Joyce was reaching the uh, local working audience. I started reading the book when I was a youngish teenager, a very getting ahead of myself in a Hereford Waterstones, actually. <laughs> um, but I remember it having a distinct physical effect on me at the time, actually, and the, the prose actually sort of set my heart racing a bit. I haven't finished the book. Um, it's been like a tide coming in over mm -hmm. years, um, and I've uh, gone to audiobooks and things, and I, you know, I remember getting out of the library and being quite pleased with myself. I mean, I'm a complete convert, obviously, but um, I wondered how you felt about, um, because there are quite difficult sections, skipping bits. I mean, <laughs> I've yet to read Penelope, and I feel like, <laughs> you know, I mean, is it appropriate? Um, you know, rather than spending sort of the rest of my life, you know, to jump ahead, skip bits. I mean, I've, I've not actually used the guides, um, but, uh, you know, I went out and bought myself a nice folio version years ago, hoping that that would <laughs> induce a completion, but I, I've yet to reach it. Thank you. Uh, Hemingway famously <laughs> said it was the most goddamn wonderful book, and his... His copy, which was found after he died, that the, the last third of the book, the pages hadn't been split. So <laughs> Hemingway didn't get to the end either. Flopped <laughs> open at the dirty yeah. bits, Hemingway's copy. <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> I mean, I would say you could skim some bits rather than skip some bits. So the famously, like, Oxen of the Sun, where he parodies the 32 different 
styles from Anglo-Saxon right up to kind of Dickensian writing is so difficult um, and, and really could come so close to, to putting people off. Maybe if you do read it alongside, like one that was published recently, Patrick Hastings, the guide to James Joyce's Ulysses, is a very straightforward guide saying, essentially, in this chapter, this is what happens. It sort of it, it gives you the plot and a little bit of interpretation. So if you are skipping, maybe, you know, if, for example, Oxen of the Sun, read what a guide has to say about it so that when you come on to the next section, you know where you are. Mm -hmm. um, and I suspect, actually, if you did skip the sections, and finished it and got to Penelope, you would probably then go back and say, okay, I want to, I want to pick this up. So, so yeah, go on, why not skip it, yeah. I absolutely support it. You see, <laughs> I read the last chapter first and then I say, well, I can't do it, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I um, love that. My watch says five minutes, but there's a red light on the ground there. Could we take one more question? Would that be allowed? Possibly one more. I just saw you first, so you go. I've read it loads of times. Great. <laughs> um, and each time I read it, I find something new, yeah. which yeah. is what a good book should do. Yeah. But how would you put it on a par, say, even, dare I say, with Shakespeare? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, he put himself explicitly <laughs> on a par with... Uh, I mean, you know, if you're going to call your book Ulysses, first of all, you are setting yourself alongside the greatest, or the, uh, at least the most revered book of European literature, the, uh, the Odyssey. And within the book itself, he, he takes on Shakespeare. I mean, the only book that is sort of referenced ex uh, as explicitly as the Odyssey is Hamlet throughout. And I think Joyce was very, very, very consciously writing himself into the canon and saying, you know, this essentially write it. There's this scene in the library in the Skiller and Charybdis where they're talking about the Irish epic mm. and why the Irish epic hasn't been written and why there's been no great sort of Irish uh, bard, essentially. Or, and Joyce has said, yeah, this is, he, he is, this is his offering for that. <laughs> but but once they can stand alongside Homer and Shakespeare, at least the opinion was that Ireland had not yet produced somebody and Joyce was laying down his candidature for it, and a pretty convincing candidature, I think, mm. anyway. I'm lucky mm. enough to be on a Dean course at the moment ah. with James Cannon, people in Ireland, uh. in Dublin, and Andrew Bethuel, I don't know if you know of him. No. Um, and uh, we meet three times a week, and I'm missing one this evening. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, discussing it with other people every it's, time. It is a bottomless, it's a bottomless yeah. book. There is a book club in Dublin that's been going for over 20 years that only reads fin Finnegan's Wake. That's it. <laughs> uh, that's true. Um, and on that note, um, I'm Sinead Gleeson. I'd like to thank my wonderful panel, John Mitchinson, Zhao Lugo and Adam Viles. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.